This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That means 20 years of Texas art coverage, 20 years of publishing writing from across the state, and 20 years of showing the world all Texas has to offer. Since our publication is a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to help support our coverage, you can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining donor by visiting glasstar.com forward slash donate. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Welcome to this week's Art Dirt. This is a, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss what we call topical art topics. Uh, my name is Christina Reese. I'm William Saradet. So we have two things we're going to talk about this week. We're going to split this in two. Um, one is we're wrapping up, or we've just wrapped up Pride Month, and um, we were kind of we want to reflect on not just the art shows that have happened in Texas even over lockdown. Um, that were, you know, had a, a, a subject matter or were made by people who are gay or queer, um, but also uh, things that we've looked at, movies we've watched, TV shows we've watched, stuff we've streamed, books that we've read that um, are also kind of related. So, because it's a very, very rich environment out there right now. And the second thing that we're going to talk about is um, stems from a conversation that you and I had a few months ago when we were walking through the Fort Worth museums together, and there were uh, shows in the museums that were really quite heavy and fraught, and it kind of made sense given the the state of the world right now. But we talked about whether or not this was what we should be expecting from museums and galleries and institutions going forward, considering the state of the planet and the state of politics. And um, we're gonna talk about what, what we probably will be seeing going forward, but also what we maybe would like to see that either goes along with that or is quite different from that. I think some people are very burned out and would like to have some positivity in their lives, and I think other people feel like the most important thing is to actually see art that addresses how dire things are. When you have a really big cultural moment like we have had across the globe over the past year, um, you can expect some big shifts and some big trends to take place. We look at a lot of events, um, among other things, doing what we do at Glass Tire. And so it's expected that we would see a lot of material of all kinds covering pretty dark territory. But um, after several months of seeing and reviewing those shows, I just asked myself, well, um, are we obligated to look at that stuff? Are we obligated to show it? And if so, why? Um, in which cases are we excused from dwelling in the depths of darkness? Just, you know, a, a lot of existential questions. Yeah. So we'll tackle that in the second half. But first, we're going to jump into 
uh, the, again, kind of the tail end or the wrapping up of Pride Month. And so I have to make a confession. One of the things I watched first, you know, during the early days of the lockdown, I believe I watched it in March of 2020. It debuted then, and there were a lot of positive reviews about it. And I keep telling people about this. It's a documentary on Netflix called Circus of Books. And um, it's about a couple who, now, how do I put this? There's a filmmaker who made a fucking great uh, documentary about a couple who owned the hardcore porn uh, and gay life bookstore of West Hollywood, California, um, that was, you know, that was super active in the 80s and 90s. Um, And it's a very... It's incredibly entertaining. They had three kids who had no idea. This is a straight couple, by the way. Their kids had no idea what their bookstore was, but it was really the center of gay life in West Hollywood, California, and and Los Angeles. It closed pretty recently. Of course, the internet has changed everything. Here's the weird thing. The documentary was made by their own daughter, uh, Rachel Mason, and she has found her calling. I mean, this woman is an absolute natural of making documentaries. This is a fascinating documentary. documentary about this rise and fall of a family business and sort of, um, and how, and really how conventional the parents were. And, uh, to some degree, even, um, uh, conservative they were, and yet they were the center of this community. It's got a lot of really good talking heads in it, like Simon Doonan, who I've read all of his books. He was the creative director of, of Barney's. And so you'll recognize some people in it who will talk about how, you know, at that time we didn't have the internet and, um, and being out and gay was still really a problem. The AIDS epidemic was ongoing too. And so... Um, it was really a lifeline for a lot of people in LA and it's a, it's just terrific. I can't tell you how good it is. I keep talking about it. Every now and then these stories of almost like you said, Christina, there'll be a family business. Often it's on the West coast that finds out a way to, for lack of a better phrase, sell sex, but not in a, not in a sleazy manipulative way, but rather, um, again, as you referenced there they are just sort of like a conventional, uh, otherwise, like, I don't know how else to describe this. They they don't dress in any particular way. It's just a straight couple that wanted to start a business, and they found one that had a probably a growing audience. They probably started their business at a time when it was becoming more accessible or available to, to peruse these things without... Um, frankly fear of losing your job or being or being arrested even yeah i was just gonna say fran Leibowitz talks about this in i believe it's in public speaking the first documentary that martin scorsese made um and (laughs) i i am a crotchety uh octogenarian myself so i like fran (laughs) Leibowitz, but she this is part of her gay polemic or queer polemic is that um back in the day you would simply go to a gay bar and the next morning, your name would be written in the paper and you would have lost your job. For That's right. Not, we're not talking about lewdness in public. We're not talking about um, <laughs> any, any kind of uh, sordid affair. We're talking about going somewhere that would simply just identify your sexuality. And then on that basis alone, you could lose your entire livelihood. And so, th- I mean, there, there were some, some legal repercussions for the couple as well. But, I mean, in, in terms of... 
of this particular documentary, it really just kind of, it covers this history of the LGBTQ movement and Western division, the impact of AIDS, um, and a really loyal staff as well. So it's a joy. Another thing that I wanted to direct people to is a documentary that's not always available online, but right now it is available on YouTube. So you might want to catch it before it gets ripped down if that's going to happen. But Charles Atlas made a documentary about Lee Bowery, who uh, is now dead. And the reason I bring it up is because Michael Alig died over the pandemic. Um, he was party monster. He was a club kid in New York City. He modeled himself after Lee Bowery, who was this legendary performance artist in London, originally from Australia, who was sort of the king of the club scene, the underground club scene in the 80s in London. He was incredibly inventive. His costumes and makeup and everything were absolutely incredible and strange and frightening and amazing and he really was an artist and he worked with Michael Clark the the legendary choreographer they were both young guys who would go out into the clubs and make a scene and they were wonderful and this documentary is beautiful and as I said it's not always available but it's available right now and if you've seen Party Monster there's Party Monster there's a documentary and there's a movie starring Macaulay Culkin they're both fascinating Michael Alig was absolutely a psychopath Lee Bowery probably wasn't I think Lee Bowery was just an absolute artist um, so that's another recommend that's a recommendation for y'all so catch it if you can as you're bringing that up I'm thinking about the Lower East Side scene and Andy Warhol's superstars I'm remembering the uh, beautiful darling documentary uh, from 2010 about Candy Darling you know what was interesting is when you when Fran Leibovitz who w- worked for you know the early days of interview magazine she had a column and she and Andy didn't get along particularly well and I keep a copy of Andy Warhol's diary, uh, diaries in my in my bathroom at all time because you can just open it up on any page and just start reading because uh, it covers years and years. But anyway, she has a good point when she talks about the people that he kept himself surrounded by. They were vulnerable. Um, they were volatile. Um, and she said, you know, what's alarming about it is the number of them who who died. Um, and she's kind of uh, basically characterizing him as a bit of a vulture in that respect. But he also, in some ways, gave them a platform. He called them superstars. Candy Darling was one of them. And also she features in a, in a very famous uh, Velvet Underground song. But, you know, um, I love that era. And I think people forget how groundbreaking it was and what was happening and how things were happening quickly for the time, considering there was no internet. But... Um, And then that, of course, also brings up the whole idea of just watching the Fran Lebowitz documentaries, both by uh, Martin Scorsese and the one that came out this year was, you know, the talk of the town for a long time because she's brilliant and she's funny and uh, she doesn't do much writing anymore, but she's a hell of a public speaker. I agree. It's it's hard to pine for. The down the old school downtown New York scene or any any number of collective groups of people that really established um, major landmark moments in American culture because those times were so dark, <laughs> but it, and also because my generation I will say has a tendency to forget that uh, the Andy Warhol days were the days where publicity was sort of being invented. It wasn't a status quo element of everyday life. These people were actually not fabulous in the public eye, in the public conscious. Nowadays, we look at 
someone like Kim Kardashian or Paris Hilton and we feel the reflexive feedback loop of them acknowledging that we love that they look so good. Um, But back in the day, people like Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling, they didn't really have fans. They were just in a really cool clique of people that were making waves and really predicting the future of style um, that we all celebrate now. And that's what's beautiful about them is that they were iconoclasts. um, But at the time, (laughs) at the time of of living being an iconoclast is not the funnest thing <laughs> it was inc- it was dangerous it was very i mean new york city was dangerous anyway but um i mean they were putting themselves into tremendous danger just by going out in public although also new york city was the place to do it if you were going to do it because they had their clubs and bars and restaurants and places and of course the factory where they could hang out and and really express themselves and be safe i saw a drag show in austin last weekend um and i was thinking about the legacy of of the superstars and it was by the way it was so fucking funny these people are so talented and of course if you watch drag show and all that you kind of know but i mean it's also the last bastion to some degree of free speech i couldn't believe some of the stuff that they were doing but my god i haven't laughed so hard since COVID started that's so true i mean i've been to the rose room in dallas which i think is sort of the premier um drag circuit spot in this part of Texas, I would assume. I've been to um, the dive bar, really uh, honky-tonk drag spot in Arlington, not too far from where I used to go to school at UTA. And, you know, they're sort of worlds apart in uh, approach and technical prowess, maybe, but they are both right at home in the sense that you said, which is uh, really just not caring at all what anyone thinks about what you say and really try you know trying to get a rise out of people not oh yeah not for uh violence's sake but uh simply just to stir things up and add some spice to life it's it's a good sensibility to have it's pure entertainment and it really just is the history of pure entertainment it's like it's vaudeville i mean it's just they come out and you're in the whole room just lights up because there's so much electricity in the room from what's happening on stage and the the exchange between the people on stage and the audience and of course coming out of covid now that people are getting to get together again and do this it feels especially electric you know it's just i i really recommend it find your local drag show and go i would think the entertainment scene in texas in general is light years beyond where it was even 10 years ago um in in terms of like total square footage of where you can see this stuff yeah, and where I saw the drag show was not in a gay club, it was in a comedy club. So it's also just it's just gone much more mainstream. Um and some of the some of the performances I saw really I think would would qualify as performance art. Um really strong, interesting stuff. But going from live performances, there were also just things that we've been watching, streaming, reading i was thinking about you know toward the end of this whole lockdown i was looking i have i kind of keep a list of a lot of stuff that i've watched or still want to watch the the list is called to corona stream but anyway 
shows that I've watched for a long time, they just work gay storylines in so organically at this point, and you don't even think about it anymore, or I don't. Sex Education, I love that show. Uh, Big Mouth, the show Betty, uh, about the girl skaters in New York City. Um, Sam J was a great stand-up, one of the best stand-ups that came out, one of the called Three in the Morning. She did, that was one of the first releases in during COVID, because she had shot that special right before COVID started. Um, I was thinking about Last Tango in Halifax, just really organic storylines featuring major characters. Oh, Call My Agent. I love that show. Um, Two main characters are gay. And you know what? It doesn't even necessarily go into their sex lives or romantic lives, although it can. It's really just their lives. And, And it reflects the actual world. I'm a little jealous of your list, Christina. I... Not that I haven't been watching TV at all. Um, I've just mostly been watching Sophie's Heaven Suspended uh, live mixtape from the Heaven Party in uh, L.A. It's a warehouse that it's a warehouse where they hold big, edgy L.A. (laughs) DJ parties. And the mixtapes are always just completely out of this world. Uh, Sophie passed away earlier this year, unfortunately, um, a major, major loss to electronic music, contemporary electronic music. Um, and so this mixtape released, oh, I'm not even sure. It, it would have been sometime around summer, late spring last year. And it was a time when there wasn't a whole lot to do or a whole lot to look forward to. And she uh, she just dropped this mixtape that's very moody, um, ethereal, you could say, but it's also laden with sexuality and libidinality, um, unapologetic, you know, a very queer approach to discussing these topics in electronic music. It has a handful of the hottest features from that season, like Shy Girl. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> so I'm, I'm admitting, Christina, you may be a little bit more well-read on this subject at the moment because I've been just playing a really miraculous 20-minute uh, mixtape on repeat for the last year. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, when the lockdown started, uh, I bought a TV, and I haven't owned like a like a screen TV in years. I've been watching streaming on my own laptop for years, and I finally got a TV, and I just went to town with it. I, I stream stuff. When I'm done with work, I stream stuff, and I love all these shows. But anyway, that was... Oh, and also, I wanted to just say Portrait of a Lady on Fire that came out in 2019. A lot of people streamed it. It's beautiful. It's romantic. It's devastating. Absolutely, I do recommend it. And then uh, I was going to recommend a documentary that actually came out in 2016, but it's great. It's called The Best Worst Thing That Could Have Ever Happened, and it's about a Stephen Sondheim uh, musical that, that sort of took off and then just closed very, very quickly. I love Sondheim. I think he's a genius, and I will watch any documentary that has anything to do with him or his music. Um, and he's still alive, thank God. So we were going to talk about some shows that we saw or covered that did happen while COVID was happening here in Texas. This is our job. Um, what are some things that that stood out to you? Yeah, I um, I did not make it to the the Pacifico Solano show at the Houston Center for Photography, but Salome Kokoladze wrote a lovely write up of it for us, and I was so glad that he did because it was one of the shows that just I you know it's it touches on it's it's cowboys it's cowboys it's photos of cowboys um, 
It's so good. And you know what? You can because they're digital images anyway, you really can look at look at his stuff online and it's great. I, I had him on the list too. I think that that was a really, really good show. Uh, Christy Blizzard out of San Antonio released her opera, her alien opera over COVID called Let My Body Eat the Sun, which was at Fort Worth Contemporary Arts, but wasn't open to the public, but you could stream it. That was a long time in the making. Um, also, you know, actually Mark Bradford's show, uh, the Fort Worth Modern was still up when COVID started. So, um, for people who didn't get to see it, um, cause it had been up for a while. That was a, a really important show. They extended that show through, um, I think because of the pandemic, he was using end papers, uh, which are a hair product used in black salons and his approach to repetition mark making they really kind of dissolve when you step away from them and then when you get close you start to see oh they're like they've got this sticker quality so there's this like edge um and they they sort of dust up kind of easily there's a lot of not debris in the pieces but they're incredibly deep uh visually I always like that. I I always enjoy when there's, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's paint or charcoal or or a material or an approach. It's just when you can create the surface to have such a rich uh, forest of tonality. Um, I always enjoy that. And I was just, and sometimes artists do it in really surprising ways. When you get up to the surface of Mark Bradford's pieces in that show, um, you see like, oh, these are kind of like, uh, this has to be some sort of everyday adhesive object it doesn't seem like it's particularly um like a precious art material yeah it's yeah right um but at the same time the application is not haphazard it works i also enjoyed seeing narong tinta music's show at 500x um several weeks ago he's been developing his thirsties series which is um it's hard to describe. It's it's almost like a character he's developed. It's not quite a portrait. When I went to see the show um, afterwards, we had an interview and he said, I know not all artists really, really just stick their, <laughs> their whole being into this subject matter of abuse and, and violence. But, but I do and I acknowledge it. Um, and I thought that that was, I was actually really, appreciative to hear and a queer artist say that I understand you know everyone's not going to do this but I'm going to do it but I was so happy to see his show because he was able to kind of he's just pushing farther and farther he had some impasto really really impasto pieces at 500x's old location at a previous show and this time he's bringing that paint onto the floor in the form of um sculptures and then also he is kind of having a dialogue between his digital rough sketches he does for painting, which looks strikingly similar to his um, fluorescent paint on paper. Even though you can see the the opaqueness of the Photoshop brush and the digital painting, um, and there's a lot more transparency happening with the liquid paint on the wall, they actually are so strikingly similar. I was like, wow, that's that's <laughs> so interesting. He's written a couple of pieces for us as well, which is we're happy to have him on board. So That's right. I was just going to mention uh, additionally just a couple shows that recently I saw. Liz LaFleur's show, Don't Worry Baby, April through May. That was at Gallery Urbane, also in Dallas, on the west side of town. Um, 
I will say Gallery Urbane does give their artists space to do, I'll say it, immersive installations for their shows. Um, so for this exhibition, Lis LaFleur did a full room installation with uh, its rows of hanging purple fringe. And then there's a projected performance on top of it. Uh, there's a reverb effect on the vocals. It's being slowed down. Um, it was so moody. It was too dark for me to take pictures in, unfortunately, or I would have showed you all. But um, And then also recently, Por Maricón by Jose Villalobos at the Latino Cultural Center. Uh, that show is just like, you can tell he's been developing his theoretical approach. Um, there's a lot of different pieces that seem like they come from a steady development of a series. It's just, uh, there's a lot, he's got a lot to say. And if you're curious or interested, if you're, if you're thinking like, hmm, I wonder what, uh, what the theoretical approach to art making is from the queer perspective. If you go to this show, you'll kind of see it from top to bottom all in one go. <laughs> um, but yeah, that one, that's a good, that's a good one to go to if you want just a lot of pieces per square footage. So uh, with that, we're going to wrap up the, the Pride Month segment, take a little break, and then we're going to come back with our thoughts on what art is being shown across the state and beyond and what art we, may, we, we would maybe like to see and how that, uh, how that all matches up. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Texas Talks Art, which is a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. You can tune in every Tuesday at noon central time for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021. You can register to attend upcoming talks and watch videos of past talks at texastalksart.org. I've attended quite a few of these and have had a wonderful experience doing so. Definitely check out their website and sign up. You will not be disappointed. Once again, that's texastalksart.org. Okay, we are back, and we're just going to, this second segment is going to be a little bit shorter, but we're just going to quickly kind of kind of go into what we are seeing and what we would, I guess what ideally we'd like to see, although I think that's going to be a really hard question to answer. But again, a few months ago, you and I were walking through Emma Carter, The Kimball, and The Modern, and the show at The Modern was Sheeran Nishat, and the sh- two shows at the Emma Carter that we saw were Winslow Homer with Frederick uh, Remington and a Mitch Epstein or Epstein photography show. And all of it felt very, it was really, it was heavy. They were good shows, by the way. I liked all three of them very much. Um, but even the Remington and Homer show felt very, um, uh, the lens was that of a kind of problematic, expansionist colonialism of the United States. Um, despite the fact that those, both of those painters were kick-ass and Remington to me just still blows me away. Uh, but there was a darkness, uh, to all of the shows as, as there should have been. Mitch Epstein's stuff was especially dark. And of course, Sheeran Nishat has a whole lot to cover. And we were just talking about how this seems to be kind of where we are now at the same time, 
you know, we have conversations with people or even just like some of what we were talking about earlier in this show, just like going to drag shows, just the kind of celebratory feeling that's out there right now. People coming out of COVID and wanting to be together again. There's a lot of op-eds about how this is going to be the new summer of love and people need a, uh, need a chance to celebrate it and to not get too bogged down in the dire politics and the dire climate change and the direness of the economy and the direness of the trauma that we've all sort of collectively suffered under COVID. You know, I've heard even good friends say, I don't want to see any work about the pandemic or I don't want to see any work about politics. And it's not that they're not involved in that or that they don't live that shit every day. They do. They're looking for a break. And art has often been able to supply that art in any of its forms, whether we're talking about music, movies, books, uh, visual art, all of the above. Um, or live shows, as we were saying. But what is your take on that? What do you think the responsibility is of art, or is there any room for something like peace or beauty or recreation in art? You know, what... And you're, you're in your 20s, and I'm not. <laughs> we'll say that. But um, so there's a generational difference here, too, that I'm, I'm wondering about. What, is your, what are you thinking? Well, I will say that I have always um, listened to edgy music (laughs) and that's not a joke Uh, it's the truth um I've always I've always steered kind of into the stuff that is maybe pushing a little farther than my brain can allow um that's what's fun and you're talking about dark stuff you're talking about the darkness right just you know subject matter that's really intense or maybe a little bit traumatizing I recently saw Michelle Franco's New Order on Memorial Day. It's a proletarian uprising film that he started before the Trump era, uh, before Trump was in office. Um, And the kind of folktale about the movie is that, you know, he was trying to make a movie about the future, but it took him so long that when you go and watch it, you're watching a fictional social revolt in Mexico where lots of people die and you're thinking, this isn't the future. This is now. (laughs) Um, I won't say I take pleasure or I necessarily enjoy the horrible subjects that art can take on, but I think that sometimes they produce the most profound, the most relevant, the most important um, messages, uh, stories, ideas. I think that everything can't be Teletubbies and Blues Clues, you know? (laughs) It certainly doesn't feel like it's Teletubbies and Blues Clues right now in the world. We've had a really rough year. That's been said plenty of times. Um, but so how do we uh, regulate our internal body temperature, so to speak, with art? Are we supposed to only uh, look at the the horrible things through the lens of art? Um I mean, I think it's also funny to have this conversation in Texas. I grew up in a Christian, pious household. We were, uh, as kids, we were sort of given not parables, but literal uh, real stories about orphans in Sudan that we needed to donate money to. Or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the starving children in China that don't have enough to eat. We were told those stories uh, all the time to kind of remind us that... uh, the sort of sovereign nation that I, you know, we're being brought up in did it right. And we live in the appropriate culture. And um, now, you know, the death toll, the healthcare system, the electrical grid, 
this is a lot for your average American Texan citizen to take on, to worry about. Um, and they're not things that you can necessarily do anything to fix. Uh, so um, in that vein, it's it's like as a Texan, as a young person, I mean, a- any which way you want to slice it. It's like, how do I feel about the world? And then what am I taking with me when I walk into a beautiful, sparkling commercial gallery um, when I look at the paintings and the photos and the, uh, you know, the pieces on the wall. I don't have a singular answer to that question other than to sort of deflect to my, I don't know, 15-year-plus history of intentionally taking on pretty hardcore art, stuff that's about um, serious, scary, horrible, or just really intense things. Yeah, I looked around. I uh, I looked around at the art that I own, and I think I, I think about conversations I have with my mother about about art and how she doesn't want. She grew up in a pretty rough situation, frankly, uh, pretty bad. And when she came out of that as an adult and got herself out of it by getting her PhD and starting a family, et cetera, she decided she didn't want darkness and ugliness in her life. So when she sees something like the Chapman brothers work, she's just like, why would they make that? Why would I want to look at it? And of course I'm always like, well, you don't have to put it on your wall. You don't have to own it. You know, you don't have yeah. to look at it every day, but of course artists are just responding to the world that they live in and the, the times that they live in. And the Chapmans of course are extremely dark and I think they're very worthy. Um, a lot of the work that I own is pretty dark. Um, I realized, you know, it's not, it's not a walk in the park. On the other hand, I certainly still really respond to just pure beauty and and the kind of the sublime that can come out of out of that and I, I kind of bounce back and forth in terms of I'm very happy to go into another place and look at the darkest of the dark stuff I, whether I want to bring it home with me is another question I mean my mind's eye is very very strong and I can have a really hard time flushing certain images out of my brain they can come back to me compulsively it's why I don't watch horror films because I have nightmares every night anyway and I can't flush that shit out so I don't know the answer to that I think artists we just have to trust artists to do what feels right for them I don't want to ignore artists who are fantastic photographers or painters or sculptors who do abstract work that happens to be compositionally or materially absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. We need it. We still need it. Um, and it's kind of like a palate cleanser, or maybe it's just, um, it's just another, another movement in the symphony, but I think we're going to see a lot of both. I do think that a lot of museums are going to feel almost beholden to our current moment to show some of the darker stuff, probably over the next three to five years. I, you know, it's, it's a good point that you bring up that it's good to know yourself in, in some capacity in whatever way that you can, if you don't think you can handle something, you know, then take care of yourself. That that's all it is not to put the responsibility onto the audience in every situation and scenario. I don't think that's fair either, but there's nothing wrong with doing your homework. I, you know, that's what we do every, every day of the year. (laughs) We do our homework. We, we Uh look into it. We research, we Google, we, um, we take it on. Yeah, at nighttime before bed, I really make a point of watching comedy. And I've been telling a lot of people, if they're like, what are you watching? It's like, well, at nighttime before I go to bed, I do not watch dark stuff. I don't watch murder mysteries. I don't watch crime thrillers. I don't watch procedurals. I watch comedy, whether it's stand up or just a show um, or a movie. 
And it helps kind of get those endorphins going and the dopamine. And then when I go to bed and go to sleep, I'm not all riled up. I also don't read the news after 10 p.m. Because, you know, you get up in the morning and you drink coffee, which automatically spikes your anxiety anyway. You get onto the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, whatever, whatever it is you read. It's just the apocalypse out there. I mean, right now the West Coast is on fire. It's melting. The power lines and the highways are just like disintegrating in 116 degree heat climate change is not sort of upon us it's up on us what are we supposed to do so i try to like i try to pick my my hours of the day when i can take in the heavy stuff and when i can as you said take care of yourself if you know yourself after 10 p.m i'm like none of that anymore no 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 i've got to sleep tonight or i can't get up and work tomorrow morning you know christina after months and months of uh Seeing shows through an email press release, um, sad to say, uh, I had the distinct pleasure of going to see the Bartlett Project in Bartlett. That's 45 minutes north outside of Austin, tiny, tiny old western town. Um, Leslie Moody Castro brought together some Austin creatives and really analyzed the question of, you know, what is development? What can it be? What will it be? This is Austin we're talking about. If you're anywhere near, it's coming. Get used to it, you know. And um, Leslie loves those questions, and I always appreciate when she tackles them in the myriad ways she does. You know, that's that's a. It was great to see everybody. I had a wonderful time. Uh, it was well. It was more than welcome. But you know, social practice, heady project. That night, I drove 200 miles to Dallas to the power station to see Sumi Han's newest curatorial project called factory settings and you know what it was just that show was beautiful images precisely encased in thoughtful frames in perfect lighting with the best crowd and I had both in the same day you know I saw a show that was really trying to tackle the problems the tide that's coming up from under our feet and then the next hour, I'm seeing um, just a cutting-edge show about drawings and prints by AAPI artists. The show was filled with levity and celebration and enjoyment, aesthetic pleasure. Um, nobody felt bad at that opening, I can tell you that much. And it was just like, wow, if the world can functionally be open, we'll get to have both, you know? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And you can take your pick. I... I personally recommend taking uh, a ride on the wild side every now and then. Pick something that's maybe a little hard for you to to figure out. Um, maybe it's a little dark. Meditate on it a little bit. And then, you know, the next weekend you can have some fun. Yeah, or go to the Kimball and look at their fabulous collection. You know, I mean, there's, there's you, know, you can. You can you can go back and forth. When I was in Austin last weekend, I spent almost the entire time, daytime and nighttime, in the comedy clubs. I had a reason for doing that uh, as a fly on the wall. But it was a really strange uh, experience because I drove all over town, and there are homeless encampments all over Austin now that I didn't know about. And I read the newspaper every day. I read Texas newspapers every day, too. And I was stunned to see how much of it is. There's like mini skid rows all over Austin uh, that were not there before COVID. This was my first trip to Austin since COVID. And um, but I was in the comedy clubs and I was seeing just absolutely incredible stuff. I mean, 
really, really just this creative uh, explosion that's happening. I know that Austin is trying to line itself up as the next comedy mecca, and it may do it. Um, there were comics there from Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, New York, and that's a typical weekend in Austin now. And people are out. Again, they're out to see stuff. And some of that stuff's dark, but some of it's joyous. And it was joyous just to laugh. So, yeah, you're right. Just just take your pick. Go back and forth. Bounce around. We, we do it. Um, it's good for your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we have a choice. I think that we need, to, we need to be both taking care of ourselves with the joyful, and we also need to be grounding ourselves with reality and, um, and paying attention to what artists are trying to get out there right now. So with that, um, we do hope that all of you are um, starting to kind of crawl back out into the light and maybe you're all kind of on the road for 4th of July or doing your thing for 4th of July. But, um, uh, any more thoughts? I just, you know, we're encouraging people to leave your house if, if you feel so inclined and I'll, I'll bet that you do. I will say I'm not much of a, an outdoor gathering person. I, I actually didn't even go to the pride parade this month. Um, but that's just a personal decision. Um, I know that I'm going to go see some, some more commercial shows. There's a lot of good museum shows up right now. You know, yeah, the galleries are open. The group summer shows, we're back to not normal, but we're starting to reach toward it. And I think that there's a huge push to have that feeling, that feeling of like, it's okay. You can you can go do this now. So be safe, obviously. And please do what you can to celebrate and support your local art scenes. It's time again. The artists are there. They're making their stuff. Their stuff is what keeps us alive and keeps us going and makes the day worth living. So that's our Art Dirt this week. And we hope to see you again or have you listening to us again in a couple weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Go see some art. Go see some art. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by Texas Talks Art, a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. Tune in every Tuesday at noon CST for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021. You can register for upcoming talks and watch past talks at texastalksart.org. Once again, that's texastalksart.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.